Is it possible to be too good? Would God be disappointed in you if you were too wise? I don't know about you, but when we read that passage, the verse which stood out for me was verse 16. Don't be too good, it seems to say. Don't be too wise either. Well, that's very odd. What does that mean? If you're thinking to yourself, there must be more to this than at first appears, then you'd be thinking along along the right lines. After all, it says that the consequences of being what it calls too righteous, the consequences of having too much righteousness, it says, is destruction. Yet, Jesus Christ is perfect in righteousness. Would we say that his goodness will destroy him? Of course not. So this unusual saying, it gives us an excuse to talk about righteousness. That's not a word we use every day. Some of you would prefer not to think about such words. They sound too, I don't know, theological But righteousness, let's talk about this. And I want this morning to speak about righteousness in three different ways. Firstly, there's that which involves an overly strict lifestyle, which is almost always uh, displeasing to God. Secondly, righteousness can also mean good behaviour, which we should aim to do. And thirdly, There is a perfect righteousness which is given as a gift of God to people. So hopefully by the end of this message, you'll have a a clearer understanding of what attitudes are to be avoided, what are to be nurtured, and also hopefully we'll have a greater appreciation of the greatness of God's gift. So the first type of uh, righteousness I'd like to speak of, I've described it as the righteousness of fanaticism. Righteousness as fanaticism. Being fanatical. So the the author of this uh, part of the book, the, the man that we now know as Kohelet, He warns us about a certain lifestyle which can be damaging. So I'm focusing on those first few words of verse 16. Be not overly righteous. Some people will be like, great, I don't have to be too good. It doesn't mean that at all. We need to work out what type of behaviour would cause Kohelet to give this warning. What type of behaviour? Because... It's good for us to be good. You agree with that, don't you? It's good for us to be good. We want to please God, don't we? Now in the past, many people have made the tragic mistake of believing that they could um, behave so well that God would accept them. And we call this a religion of works. 
a religion of works. And even today there are people who think that if they just do more holy stuff, they can get right with God. And that's tragic. Obviously, if you do think that your salvation depends on your efforts, well, you're going to work like Billio. You're going to make a lot of effort. The more of this good stuff you can get done, the better chances of eternal salvation. Now, an example of this can be seen in the early church. By early church, we mean the first few hundred years after Jesus ascended. Some people, they didn't understand the grace of God properly. Now, we know that you can't earn salvation, but these people thought you could. A few of them went off into the desert. They wanted to get away from everyone else. Others formed small communities of like-minded people. And you can think of these people as uh, the early uh, monks. And it wasn't only they had a desire to be as good as possible. That would be great. That would be fantastic. But these people started to view all earthly pleasures as sinful. They believed the best way to keep sin at bay was to treat themselves harshly. So they wore rough clothing. They deprived themselves of sleep. They starved themselves. And the tragedy of that whole way of thinking is that it always fails. No matter how much good a person does, no matter how much pleasure they deprive themselves of, it cannot save them from God's wrath. The only way such a lifestyle could save their souls is if for their entire lives they were as good and as righteous as God himself. And that ain't going to happen. Now to be fair to these people, none of them, none of them believed they were as good as God. But they believed a man had to go as far as possible in this miserable, self-harming religion to have any chance of escaping damnation. The other peril, I thought, of this, this, uh, this religion of works, the other peril is uh, pride. If a man can see he's you know, he's, he's clearly being more extreme than the people around him. He'll think himself more righteous. He'll think he's more deserving of God's favour. And quite simply, he'll think he's better than other people. Self-righteousness is like just self-destruction. We're not like that. Ours is a religion of grace, not works. If I asked each one of you individually... If you can earn salvation, if you can earn salvation through being good and running yourself ragged, I hope every one of you would say, you can't. Every true child of God here today understands that acceptance with God is because of his undeserved kindness. Okay. So... 
Does what Kohelet says here have anything to do with us who believe in salvation by grace? Well, I believe it does. Let me try to rephrase what he says so we can better understand how it might apply to us. You're a Christian who attends this church. At some time in your life, someone pointed you to Jesus as Saviour. You prayed to God. You admitted to him that you were a wretched sinner in his eyes. You asked him not to destroy you, but to save you. And based on what the scriptures promised, you came to understand that your sins had been forgiven and you had the promise of eternal life. Then, through the, pre through the, well, through the reading of the word yourself and through the preaching of the word that you hear on a Sunday, maybe, well, you, you learned about the importance of obeying God. Your habits changed. You understood the importance of God's family. You started to worship God. You began devoting time to God at home. You desired to tell others about Christ Jesus. Everything changed. That's good. And God would have you strive to do good works. But it's possible you could take things too far. It may be that your character in your old life was quite, um, say, intense. And sometimes that baggage can be carried over into the new Christian life and you can become an extremist, but not in a good way. You probably know this, but when, when, when we're converted, some of our old characteristics are cancelled out straight away. Some of them are not, and they take time to, to be the, the harmful ones. They take time to be uh, driven out of, of our lives, and that's, that's the hope. But, but obviously for some Christians, uh, well, I mean every Christian, let's face it, every Christian brings some bad traits over into their new Christian life, and, and it can affect your behaviour in the, in the church life. And for some, they might be very single-minded and driven, and it can cause them to go to extremes in their Christian lives. For example, they might fast. Fasting's okay. They might fast to a degree way beyond what's healthy. They might be confrontational with strangers in the street, thinking that they're doing proper evangelism. Uh, they might see anything pleasurable in this life as sinful, abstaining from things that Jesus himself would be happy to be involved in, like, you know, wedding celebrations or something. Kohelet isn't telling us not to be too good, okay? He's not telling us to avoid being too nice. He is saying, don't be a fanatic. He understands God wants us to be zealous. He wants us to present ourselves daily as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice in God's service. But he wants us to be balanced. He wants us to find a way 
To be enthusiastic for the cause of the gospel, but also be happy, not miserable. You'll also see in verse 17, it's worded worded unusually, but that's deliberate. We won't go into that today. But certainly, it mentions wickedness. We shouldn't be wicked. His message is to avoid both extremes. Don't be a religious fanatic, please. Don't be an evildoer. Verse 18 assures us that the one who fears God will avoid both of those extremes. Here's the second type of righteousness we'll talk about today. Righteousness as good behaviour. Righteousness as good behaviour. So just to be clear, the author does want us to behave in a righteous way. Those who fear God will want all their actions, their words, even their very thoughts, to be of a righteous kind. Because when you, if you, for example, if you show kindness to a person who is acting, you know, wrongly and has some horrible attitude that pleases God, your kindness pleases God. When you tell people about Christ and the gospel, even if it makes you look like an idiot, it pleases God. When you dedicate yourself to the local church, it pleases God. I want to look at a few verses now from elsewhere in the scriptures just to help us today refocus on our lifelong duty. The first one is in Ephesians 2 and verses 8 to 10. Ephesians 2 verses 8 to 10. If I'm not mistaken, this was on the wall in New Road Church. It was on a, on a big sign. New Road, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. For by grace... You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Ephesians. Yeah, Ephesians 2. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what I said earlier. We're saved by God's grace. And this is a gift he gives to whoever he chooses. And it's certainly not based on our good works. We connect to this mercy of God. We connect to it through the act of faith. And then having received this mercy, we live a life full of good works. We do righteous stuff. Here's another scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 3 to 8. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body. In holiness and honour. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. 
As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. There's that word sanctification. It has two meanings now, two, two senses. In choosing to save you and in saving you, God declares you to be a sacred object, a sacred object which will bring in glory and you were set apart from the people of this world and you became this holy thing which was to please God. That's one meaning. Another use of the word sanctification is what we saw in the verse. You must be sanctified in your behaviour. And our Christian walk should, should become refined as we get older, as we go on in the Christian life. We should see changes in us. I mean, that, that's just one example. In Thessalonians, that's about sexual immorality. God calls us to be... Um, well, to, to, to live lives of purity in those matters. Purity. And to disregard the warnings about these things, the Apostle says, is a direct offence against God. The Lord has called us out of the mass of mankind to serve him and enjoy him forever. Not despise what he says. Well, we've been warned about extreme behaviour in the name of righteousness. But now we're talking about righteousness as obedience to God. And believe it or not, there's a type of extremism which is encouraged. Extremism. There are aspects of your Christian life in which you should aim for extremism. Think about the avoidance of sin. God doesn't want you to avoid most of sin. He wants you to avoid all of it. He wants you to stop doing it. He wants you to detest sin. Especially in yourself, obviously. <laughs> Other people, especially in yourself. So your righteousness in resisting temptation can't be too extreme. Think about the love for God. Our love for God. From the earliest times in the scriptures, people have been urged to <clears throat> love God with their whole being. You're not asked to love God a fair bit. You're asked to love him completely. You should love him with all your heart and your mind. So your righteousness in loving God can't be too extreme. Be an extremist. Now, since that I've said you can go too far in what you consider righteous habits, and I've also said in some areas you can't go far <laughs> enough, I feel a need to go over this very quickly and state it more clearly. It's, it's like this. If the way you live your Christian life causes you to neglect your family as pastors are prone to do, 
for example. If you neglect your Christian, if you neglect your family, you're going too far. If your behaviour involves harming yourself for no good reason, you're going too far. If your attitude results in you despising things which God has given for our pleasure, such as a fulfilling job, eating and drinking with friends and family, so on. If you despise those things, you're going too far. But you are expected to serve God every day. And in the scriptures, you'll find all the direction you need. You should be zealous. And in terms of the avoidance of sin and the love of God, you can't be too zealous. Do those things with all your might. And obviously beg God every day for the power to do them. Here's the third type of righteousness now. Righteousness as a perfect gift. Righteousness as a perfect gift. This book of Ecclesiastes is notorious. There's pastors all over the world who their whole Christian lives avoid preaching from this book. And I know why. Because it's, it's tough. It's, it's a tough one. I don't always know if I've got it right. But if I've understood Kohelet correctly here, there's a way of pursuing righteous behaviour and the seeking of wisdom which is self-destructive and not what God wants. Yet from other things Kohelet said, we know he encourages to behave and think in a righteous manner. Let me make an important point through a, a, a story. I want you to imagine a respectable religious person. This religious person, they attend church regularly, they give money to the church generously, they're kind to the people around them. When you see them in church, they, you know, they smile at you and they like to see others happy, pray to God, and so on. So imagine that person, that's a likeable person. <coughs> Let's say they get to the end of their life. Get to the end, it's all over. They go the way of all men. But Kohelet, in, in chapter 3 actually, uh, told us this weeks and weeks ago. He said that this isn't the end. Death is not the end. Ecclesiastes 3.17 I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. The grave isn't the end, is it? There's going to be a resurrection of the dead. And then there'll be some kind of judgment day. So what a person's done in their life will be examined. Just imagine the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, looks this respectable, dedicated church going in the eye at the judgment and says, get away from me, you cursed thing. 
I never loved you, you never belonged to me. And he instructs the angels to take that person away to that lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, the person is in such shock they can hardly speak. They can't believe what's happening. They summon up the strength to shout out an appeal to the judge saying, Lord, haven't you seen all the things I've done for you? All the money. All the money I've given to the church. You must have made a mistake. The judge of all the earth, who is always perfectly just, ignores their plea. And the sentence is carried out. What went wrong? What on earth went wrong? This person has done all the things they thought they were supposed to do. They've done the praying, they've done the singing, they've done the giving, they've done all the smiling and the kindness. What more could they do? And the answer, friends, is shown in that very question. The answer is contained in their own question. What more could I do? They don't understand that it doesn't matter if they filled every minute of their lives with church activity. They don't understand their entire lifetime of activity in the church is worthless if it's not done in the name of Christ. There's these people, they, 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 they're in churches all over the world. They, they are churchgoers rather than disciples. They convince themselves that they're doing okay instead of daily going to God and confessing to God just how sinful they are. They think God will accept them because they've done more good than bad. Simply put, they do not understand the gospel. They don't understand what the gospel is. Here's what God, when he looks down on mankind, here's what he sees. Romans 3, verses 10 to 12. This is what God sees when he looks at mankind. No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one seeks God or have turned away or have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Well, that's a, that's a damning indictment and it, it agrees with what Kohelet has said. But the person in my story sounded like they'd done good. They were respectable. They were religious. They'd apparently done all those righteous things, surely those righteous acts, they must have value in the sight of God. Here's what the prophet Isaiah says about those things. Isaiah 64 and verse 6. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, 
They are nothing but filthy rags. That's the problem right there. That's the problem right there. The person who lived this religious life was summoned to God's judgment. They represented themselves in court and their whole case relied on this huge list of righteous things they'd done. But God didn't see this record as, you know, like some beautiful, beautifully bound, gold-leafed volume with pages full of righteous deeds. God didn't see that. God saw a bag of filthy rags fit only for the bin. Well, friends, I know many people will, at the judgment, make this very same dreadful mistake. They'll tell God about their good works. But that's not the case for you, is it? That's not the case for anyone here. They're not going to tell God how good they were. Of course you're not. None of you will point to your church activities when you, when you meet God. That, that, that's not what you'll do, I believe. I say that because I believe that everyone here understands the gospel. I don't know you all understand the gospel. I don't know it for sure, which is why I'll continue to preach it as often and as clearly as I can until I drop down dead. The gospel needs continually going out. People are sinners, friends. People are sinners. Sin is breaking the law. It's worse than breaking the law of Great Britain and Ireland. It's breaking God's law. And as a proper judge, he won't let people off. That's good, is it? Is it not good? Would you want a judge to let a serial killer go free? Of course not. What what if this barrister stood up and said, well, he's a serial killer, but... He's done a lot of work for charity. A judge would not overlook all those crimes just because he's worked every Wednesday afternoon in the charity shop. It wouldn't matter how much stuff he's done. It doesn't undo the reality of his crimes. And so it is with the sinner standing before our holy God. Their sin has separated them from God. No amount of religious activity or noise can undo that. No amount of righteous behaviour can make all their crimes against God vanish. And this sinfulness is universal. Every man or woman ever born into this world is in the category, they start in the category of sinner. Look what it says in verse 20 here. Verse 20, surely there's not one righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. There's not one righteous man on earth who does good, who only does good and never sins. Not one. This, friends, is why every faithful gospel preacher will explain how a sinner can obtain the righteousness of God, the very righteousness of God himself. And the the preacher will show that as the way a sinner can be accepted by God 
So good, we have an answer. It's not all, all hope is not lost. We have that answer. It's the righteousness of God we need. This is how the Apostle Paul describes those who will appear before God thinking their righteous deeds will save them. In Romans 10 and verse 3. He says of these people, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, so not understanding the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You might remember this next verse from when we were going through Philippians quite a while ago, Philippians 3 and verse 9. Paul says, I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God. So in the proclamation of the gospel. Sinners are told to abandon all hope of saving themselves. They are instructed to count all their goodness and religious activity as dung. And then we urge them to go to God in prayer and ask him to cleanse them, to give them his righteousness. And when a person trusts in Christ as their substitute, they not only receive forgiveness for all their sins, past, present and future, but they are clothed with the righteousness of God himself. Clothed. If you, dear brother or sister, if you have ever thrown yourself at the mercy of God and received his salvation, he accepts you as perfect. Now I know you sin. So do I. So do I. But when God looks at us, he looks at us, he's not blind, he knows we sin, but he's able to also, at the same time, see that our sins are being paid for by Jesus our Saviour. When he looks at us, he, he, he doesn't see our filthy garments. He, what he sees is, he looks and he sees the righteousness of Christ. He's able to look at us as if we were people who've never sinned and only ever done good, righteous things. This is what we preach. Sins removed. Righteousness given. I told you a story about a sinful person who stands at the judgment seat and you remember his appearance ended in eternal disaster. Let's change the story. Let's say that same person comes across the gospel. Maybe they just heard 10 seconds of open air preaching as they marched on their way to Primark. Maybe they found one of our little gospel tracts on a train somewhere. Maybe they visit some local evangelical church out of curiosity and they hear the gospel from the pulpit. A 
and they repent. They believe on Christ. And they believe the scriptures which promise them the eradication of sins, the receiving of Christ's righteousness and eternal life ahead of them. They live their Christian life and through the work of the Holy Spirit they find a good balance. <coughs> they avoid unhealthy extremes but they still find a way to serve God with all their heart. They know what righteous deeds are and they do them. They spend their life praying with God's people. They learn about the doctrines of God. They tell others about Jesus Christ. They find a way to be content with what they have and what they own and their circumstances. They get to the end of their life. They're on a deathbed, let's imagine, and they feel able to say with the apostle, they, they fought a good fight. They run the race. They finished the course God set out for them. And then it's all over. They go the way of all men. Yet, they enter the grave with hope. Those who entrusted themselves to the mercy of God through Christ have a hope. Our Lord said that when he returns, he'll make them alive again. Sounds impossible. He'll make them people alive again. They have the promise of their saviour. He won't just forget them. He'll raise them from the dead. There's a judgment. But their appearance before God is completely different. Legally, from God's point of view, legally, they are sinless. Legally, they are perfect. The judge of all the earth now gives a very different verdict. Not guilty. Not guilty. Innocent. There's joy. There's joy and celebration in the angelic gallery. And then God, the judge, directs this person be escorted into his paradise. Friends, you've, you've listened well today. I know if you're like me, you'll be, able, you'll be unable to focus on everything said from the pulpit. What you have, what you have heard today You've probably heard it a thousand times before. But if you have listened, I thank God for that. Because this, this word of God, is our, this is our spiritual food. And I've said a lot today. But there's something here you must understand. I've said before, you must not switch off when you hear the word righteousness. You mustn't. It's, it's a problem. You shouldn't think of it as a theological word that's got nothing to do with you. It's fundamental to the gospel. So I want to finish by trying to summarise what's most important from what, what I've said today. So the first thing you should remember from today is, 
It's only possessing the righteousness of God that you can be accepted by God. Whether you're brand new to the gospel or you've been a professing Christian for years, you have to know today the righteousness of God is yours. The second thing to take from this message today is having been delivered from sin and brought into the kingdom of God, you are expected to live a righteous life. The righteous behaviour doesn't save you but it is expected of you. And the third thing you must keep in mind is that your life as a believer should be one of balance. I've given you some examples of foolish behaviour done in the name of Christ. So what I'll do is I'll commend I'll commend the Bible to you. I'll commend these oracles of God, these scriptures to you. Immerse yourself in them and you will find this balanced way of serving God. So my prayer for you all, friends, is that when I join you, when I join you at the judgment seat of Christ, that you'll be found to have his righteousness and together we'll forever enter the joy of the Lord. Amen.